Live from Cap Radio in Sacramento, this is Insight. I'm your host, Vicki Gonzalez. It has been a long, confusing, frustrating, and certainly stressful three years with COVID-19. But today, there is a significant change and possibly a renewed sense of hope, even if symbolic for Californians, as the state's emergency declaration expires. Many of the rules, regulations, laws, and things that changed our way of life for the past three years are sunsetting. While the state's emergency declaration is officially ending, the fact that remains that COVID is still with us. California has just surpassed 100,000 lives lost to COVID-19, and that's according to state health authorities. So what now? How do we move forward? What lessons have we learned about medicine, the government's response, and ourselves? Today, we are marking the end of the emergency declaration with the show dedicated to looking forward, but also reflecting on the past. And since the very beginning, there was one voice we consistently sought to help explain both the concerning and hopeful developments with the virus, as well as provide context in a frank but reassuring manner. That person is Dr. Dean Blumberg, Chief of Pediatric Infectious Diseases, at UC Davis Health. So Dr. Blumberg, thank you for joining us for the, you know, the probably the millionth time on Inside and Cap Radio. <laughs> I'm happy to be here. I think it's not quite the millionth time. Yeah. Yeah, not not quite, but still a lot nonetheless. I remember the first time I interviewed you about COVID-19. I was a reporter at KCRA at the time. It was January 27th of 2020, and at that mm-hmm. time there were five confirmed cases, two of which were in Southern California. Now we're more than three years later. California's ending its state of emergency for the pandemic. When you hear those words, what comes to mind that it's coming to a close? I mean, it's amazing to think back to that January and even February when we were just getting into it, where it was more theoretical and we were just worried about it. And we didn't have any of those restrictions that then came into effect. And even to think about those early days when we had such the severe shutdowns, when everything was virtually closed, people weren't going out at all. We've come such a long way since then. It's almost sometimes traumatic to think about that because it was so it was so difficult for so many people. Yeah. I mean, the emergency declaration may be ending but the virus is still very much with us. And for a lot of people, you know, the headline that the emergency declaration is over doesn't mean that it's over for their lives. This also comes as last week, California hit a grim milestone, 100,000 COVID deaths. Did you ever imagine we'd see a death toll that that rivals uh, the capacity of the Rose Bowl in Pasadena, which is the largest football stadium in the state? I never thought we would see so much death, so many hospitalizations that occurred. I thought that with the isolation that we had, um, that we would do better. And then the vaccines really were developed in in record time. So um, I was really surprised to see the toll that, that, that occurred in California. Given that during all of this, you became one of the voices that we relied on and countless other newsrooms throughout our region for expertise and perspective. I would imagine the request to interview you became where they were constant and maybe at times relentless, especially during the onset of this pandemic. How has that experience been for you? I mean, you have nearly 40 years of medical experience. Yeah, it was interesting. You know, I've always been interested in emerging infectious diseases, whether they're in the pediatric group, which I'm more familiar with, or even in adults. So I did feel in a in a good good place to to respond to this, to integrate the emerging information that we had. 
but it was it was really busy you know at some points you know there were there were five or ten media requests per day and that was hard to integrate into my professional life which was obviously busier than usual because of the pandemic and some of that was related to patient care that there were increased patient care needs because of covid but also we had increased administrative needs because we needed to work on setting policies in place. And so there was a lot of back and forth to make sure that we were providing the best care available and the best environment available um, for patients. So it was really busy at some at, at some points. Yeah, I mean, we're talking about professionally, but how did the past three years shape your life outside of medicine? You know, it was interesting because we certainly personally, I became more efficient, right? Because we, I think we all, there's did only 24 with, hours in a day, right? That doesn't change. <laughs> right. Right. There's only, there's only a certain number of hours in the day. And then, and then in terms of going out during COVID, we all tried to limit like the number of errands we were doing. And so we all, you know, our household, my wife and I, we figured that out, how to be most efficient in terms of doing errands and, and exposing our, our ourselves less to others. And then in terms of work too, you know, you needed to figure out what's important and what's not. And so to really try to focus in on the things that, that are important. And then also in terms of social interactions, we, you know, we, we all missed that during the social distancing. And then when we returned, you know, like a lot of people, my wife and I returned to socializing really pretty gingerly. Um, it was weird. I remember the first time going out to lunch with friends and not wearing a mask. It was really odd. So, Dr. Blumberg, we're going to take a listen back to almost kind of like chapters of the past three years. And mm-hmm. they'll, they'll just be a couple of sound bites that we're going to share. But we're going to start back to three years ago, which was February 27th of 2020. And you were talking to Cap Radio at your hospital about a patient at your hospital, rather, who at the time was potentially the first community transmitted case of COVID-19 in the country. Here's part of what you told us literally almost three years ago to the day. What this case shows is that the virus is out there, it's in the community, and patients don't have to have those traditional risk factors that we've been relying on for screening patients. It's in the community, and it is transmitted person to person. What did that moment mean to you? Is that when your your worry intensified? Yeah, I think what that showed was that that one patient diagnosing COVID in one patient with community transmission that meant that there's probably a lot of undiagnosed patients out there. So the, so there must have been more patients that just weren't tested and had mild disease. They weren't hospitalized. And remember, at the beginning of the pandemic, testing was really limited. For many of our patients, we had to call the public health officer, Dr. Kassirier, to get approval for testing um, because we had such limited capacity. So really, we we knew something was going on. We knew that that was out there. We knew that there were risks that were out there. And remember, at the beginning, we were screening patients by by saying, you know, well, have you traveled to to China in the past couple of weeks, or have you had a um, have you had a um, contact with a patient who traveled to China in the past couple of weeks? And then we kept expanding the list of countries that we were screening. And, you know, after a while, that becomes nonsensical because it's out there. It's being transmitted in our own communities and those sorts of screening 
um, questions just aren't useful anymore. Yeah. Now we have, I think, countless experiences, myself included, with my family and friends when, you know, we didn't know about COVID-19. But then you go back to like January of 2020 and you're like, I got really sick then. And then everyone's mm-hmm. kind of almost like um, self-diagnosing themselves with hindsight, which is obviously non-scientific. But I think a lot of those anecdotes came to play. You know, when talking about the testing and really the dramatic shortage that we had with testing at the very beginning, you joined Insight again just 11 days later from that last soundbite that we played, and you talked about the challenges of testing. So let's take a listen back. We've been just in the dark trying to find out how far this virus has penetrated in the community. And with the very limited testing that's been done, we really haven't been able to describe the landscape. And what we've really heard in terms of the cases is really the tip of the iceberg. What were some of the lessons that you and other medical professionals have learned about what could be done better if or when there's another pandemic? I think I'm hopeful that we all appreciate the role that public health plays in all of our lives, that it's not just a theoretical issue, but we really need to support the public health infrastructure in the country, in the state, in our county. Um, We really need public health, and that's important for our own personal health. And so if we had um, more support for public health, we might have had um, these tests available sooner, and we might have been able to ramp up production and had wider availability of these tests, and that would give us a better idea of how much community transmission there was and really what steps needed to be taken next. Yeah, and that support obviously includes funding as well. At what Mm -hmm. points were you maybe the most frustrated during the course of the pandemic of not being able, you and your colleagues, to accomplish what, what you needed to be done just due to factors outside of your control? I think one of the issues that we just didn't know enough about was the protection that was provided by masks. And, you know, we had an idea that masks probably would work um, in a community setting, but we didn't have the data to prove that. Um, We weren't sure if masks were going to be in short supply, so if we should be recommending them for the public or if they should be reserved for the healthcare environment. And, you know, I remember this one moment when I went in to see a baby who had COVID, a newborn who had COVID. And at that time, we weren't masking unless there was an um, aerosol producing procedure in place because we we thought it was mostly transmitted via aerosol so that, that there was low risk. I remember being unmasked in this room with this baby and this baby crying and thinking, you know, those are pretty vigorous, good cries. And looking at the nurse next to me, and we're both not wearing masks, thinking there's got to be COVID coming out when this kid is crying and breathing. And we're just standing there without masks on. This doesn't seem right. And we weren't an outlier. This was very early in the pandemic where really we weren't doing the regular masking or the N95 masking for you know, for for patients, and unless there was an aerosol producing procedure, um, so that got changed. You know, and we did end up doing the N95 masks, and you know, even around casually around patients, which just makes so much more sense. But we just didn't know back then. Yeah, and, and medical staff at that time, uh, uh, nurses included. I mean, there wasn't enough PPP to even go around at the beginning of the pandemic as well. Right. You know, people were affected in their personal lives that, you know, we had that like the toilet paper shortage, right. you know, that and then in the hospital we're 
we were we were trying to figure out ways how can we extend mask usage because we were sometimes many hospitals were teetering on the edge of running out of masks and the supply chain was affected and so there was a lot of work going into you know can you extend mask use between patients can you what about the n95s can we like reuse them can we re-sterilize those you know how what, what can we do to extend the supply you're listening to Insight here on CAP Radio. If you're just joining us, we're talking with Dr. Dean Blumberg, Chief of Pediatric Infectious Diseases at UC Davis Health, reflecting on the past three years of the pandemic as California lifts its state of emergency. We'll continue the conversation in just a moment. You're listening to Insight on your NPR station, CAP Radio. I'm Vicki Gonzalez. Hi there. If you're enjoying Insight, we think you'll love our podcast, Blue Dot, with your host, that's me, Dave Shlom. Every week, we take a deep dive into science and nature, from the search for life beyond our pale blue dot in the vastness of space to the ecosystems we all depend on. You never know what you'll hear from the physics of Leonardo da Vinci to communications with humpback whales. Check out Blue Dot wherever you get your podcasts. Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR. You're listening to Insight here on CAP Radio. I'm your host, Vicki Gonzalez. If you're just joining us, we're talking with Dr. Dean Blumberg, Chief of Pediatric Infectious Diseases at UC Davis Health, a constant voice during the uncertainty and evolution of the pandemic. As California officially ends its state of emergency declaration, nearly three years since it was put into effect, Dr. Blumberg and I spent time reflecting on all that has developed since 2020. We're picking up with a significant marker, the development of vaccines. About a year later, you know, we started to have the development of vaccines uh, in a widespread fashion. But I mean, it was a bumpy rollout, to say the least. It wasn't as efficient as many people had hoped. I mean, you acknowledged this, but you also expressed some optimism when you joined us on Inside in March of 2021. So we're going to listen to a clip of that about the challenges in rolling out vaccines and, and the threat of variants. I think it has been confusing the rollout and that's because, you know, we, we really didn't have any sort of practice with this and it's an unprecedented situation. Hopefully those glitches will be resolved and hopefully we'll have vaccine available more widely. And I expect more wide availability of vaccine. I think things are looking up. The only wild card um, really is the variants. Yeah, and we'll get to variants and wild cards in just a moment. But talk to us about vaccines and how, despite the challenges of the rollout in the initial months, they helped really change the trajectory of the pandemic. I know for many people, once you got vaccinated, you just felt more powerful because you felt more protected. So it was a really good feeling to get that first dose of the vaccine. And, you know, as a public health measure for the community, you know, that's that's the ticket out of the pandemic, really, because you can't get rid of the social distancing when there's not widespread community immunity because there hadn't been that much in infection. You know, otherwise you'd end up overwhelming hospitals and hospital beds would be just totally filled and there'd be no capacity for people who are sick. It'd be a disaster. And that's what we know was seen in some countries in Italy and Iran 
um, in India and several other areas where people were dying because they couldn't be seen in the hospital. They were running out of oxygen canisters. So, so the vaccine was the way to, to have a soft landing for that. And, you know, it was really unfortunate that the vaccines end up being politicized. And it's still hard for me to wrap my head around that because much of it was on political lines. And yet the last administration, they really took the lead in providing support to develop the vaccines. And somehow it became a partisan um, issue, um, which doesn't really make that much sense to me. I mean, that should have been a real triumph of the last administration and then the current administration continuing to support vaccines. But really, we saw this also in, in China, where they had the zero COVID policy, which has its advantages. Um, they really did do a great job containing COVID, but it came at a huge societal cost. During that time of the zero COVID policy, they really had an opportunity to get effective vaccines into their population, into the most vulnerable. And unfortunately, they they didn't. They didn't succeed in that. And so when they abandoned the zero COVID policy, that did result in some preventable deaths um, occurring. You know, given that there's there's always been people who steer clear of vaccines for a myriad of reasons. But what I'm hearing from you is, have you experienced this type of hesitancy to this level in your career? You know, and we have had vaccine hesitancy since the development of vaccines for hundreds of years has been vaccine hesitancy, and it has been um, getting worse over the past few years. But really, with COVID vaccination, it's really reached a, a peak. And a lot of that is because of the um, social media um, being able to amplify these messages. And, and in, the, in addition to the vaccine messages, of course, we still have people who um, are talking about ivermectin as, as if that's working, even though we've had several high-quality um, scientific studies really debunking the the use of ivermectin. So yeah, the medical misinformation is still a problem. Hmm. With the hindsight that we have now, how do you understand the choice that some people made to not get vaccinated? Maybe they're vaccinated for other vaccines, but because it was under emergency use authorization, which is not full FDA approval, and that really factored into people's decision making. Yeah, you know, and I, I, it's difficult to public message that. So that's a that's an issue. I think it's easier to message um, on a one to one basis about the um, emergency use approval. I mean, at this point, we've had billions of doses administered around the world. But, you know, one of the issues is to talk about that um, is to talk about the experience that was had, the scrutiny, the availability of the data. The FDA did an excellent job of making sure that all the data on the vaccines was publicly available on the websites when they were having their meetings and having their discussions. And I would often refer people to that if they did have questions. And then in addition to that, I think just, you know, knowing that individual people have individual questions, so it's not a one size fit all. It's not just one message that can be given that that's going to satisfy everybody. What did the past three years teach you about how to talk to people, whether patients or just your own friends and loved ones and, and go over concerns? I think on a public health level, it's clear and consistent messaging. And we, we've known that before, and we continue to know that. And we haven't always had that from um, authority figures, um, you know, especially from politicians and others in, in authority. 
And on an individual le level, I think we really do need to be able to respond to individual concerns. So you can't just say, get the vaccine. Um, you know, you have to, people are reluctant. You have to say, well, what specific thing are you concerned about? Because different people are concerned about different things. And then there's also the issue of COVID and severity of infection. For the vast majority of people who get COVID, it will be a mild infection and will be an outpatient illness. They'll recover and they won't have consequences. But for some people, it will be severe. It will result in hospitalization. It might result in death. And even people who have a mild infection might have long-term consequences, such as long COVID. And so I think it's important for people to realize that, that there's more than one reason to, to be vaccinated. I'm going to play another soundbite from you, and this was from July of 2021, and we were discussing the emergence of the first wild card of a variant, the first big one for that matter, which was Delta variant. But before we dove into the science, I checked in on you just to see how Dr. Blumberg was doing. And so here's the beginning of our conversation in July of 2021. Dr. Blumberg, I think the first time I interviewed you on COVID was January of 2020. Uh, I just want to check in and get a sanity check. How are you doing? Oh, my God. January 2020. I can't <laughs> believe that it's been that long. It's hard to believe what we thought way back then when we weren't wearing masks, where we were looking for a handful of cases and where we thought you could only get it if you traveled and we had the travel restrictions just starting. So we've come a long way since then. It's a completely different world, isn't it? It really is. Yeah, and we're still talking about it right now. And you mentioned those things, you know, just a few moments ago. But I bring that up because it, it was a relentless time and arguably still is. Do you ever give yourself opportunities to pause and, and reflect, you know, practice self-care? And if so, how? One of the things about the pandemic for me, my pandemic experience, is that I, I was not socially isolated. I came into work almost every single day. I was in the office, I could do that because I do have a private office. So our administrative rules in non-clinical areas was it's okay to come to work. You don't have to telecommute as long as you can close the door. And so I did that. And then of course I worked in the hospital and saw patients. I had more interactions during the pandemic than I think I did without the pandemic occurring. So I felt very well connected to people, more connected than ever at work, at least, not with um, other social activities. And, you know, it was also personally, it was immensely gratifying because I felt like really productive on an individual level. I was taking care of patients and on an administrative level, working on policies and trying to increase vaccination rates. So, you know, when I came home every day, I felt very gratified and so fortunate to be in the field and, and that I was in and to have the experiences that I was in. So it just felt like I was in the right place at the right time to provide some good out there and to, to really help people. So, you know, my experience was a lot different than many others experiences. Yeah, obviously, healthcare professionals like yourself and thousands more throughout California have been those frontline heroes during the pandemic. I guess when it comes to the, the burnout that many health professionals are experiencing at, at medical centers and hospitals, I mean, what can be done to, to help alleviate uh, the, the stress and everything that they've shouldered over the last three years and counting? 
Yeah, there has been a lot of burnout, and some of that is um, related to um, other changes that have been occurring in healthcare. So many of the medical healthcare professionals are really frustrated with um, a lot of um, issues related to electronic health record, which has so many advantages, but some of the documentation requirements are onerous and um, lead to people getting frustrated. So there's a lot of that going on, a lot of billing issues, insurance issues that get in the way of patient care. And some of the rules just seem arbitrary to healthcare professionals as well as patients that we really wanna make sure patients get the care that they need. And, and yet there's barriers out there that, that are very difficult to overcome. I think one of the issues that we're appreciating is that some of the issues for medical healthcare professionals can't be taken care of with a lot of the wellness things that are out there with like taking a deep breath or doing a yoga class or something like that. We need structural changes in the healthcare system so that we're not asking people to increase their resilience, but instead making the job better, making the job easier, making it easier for us to take care of patients. And so I'm seeing, seeing some of that been realized by um, the higher ups and also the increase in the change just with the age of people entering the healthcare profession, having more boundaries in terms of what they're willing to do and not willing to do. And they're not willing to work overtime for free, so to speak. Um, and that helps with their self-care. So that's a, a positive thing. Um, those kind of changes, I think, are, are needed. Yeah, in many ways, it's a completely different world, more than uh, a year after the pandemic began, and now more than three years, or marking three years since since the pandemic began, in terms of people reevaluating their lives, and, and especially their work-life balance and what they want out of their jobs. How do you think the pandemic changed everyday life, and which changes do you believe will be lasting? Yeah, one of the things I'm hoping is that the masking continues, voluntary masking in public. You know, this occurs in many Asian communities and has for years. And I got one upper respiratory tract infection over the past three years. And that's that's not many for me, because I'm usually like in kids' faces a lot who are sick. So you know, I think masking works really well. And we, we, we've got scientific studies to prove that, that not only was that masks work and prevent COVID, but they also prevented influenza and other common community-associated respiratory infections. So I'm hopeful that's um, a positive outcome from the pandemic. The um, development of the COVID tests were good. Now we're getting development of over-the-counter flu tests also. The reason both of those are useful is that we know that if people want, they can get treatment for influenza or for COVID, antiviral treatment that is effective and will, will help you recover faster and decreased risk of serious infection. So if you can diagnose yourself and get that prescription from your healthcare provider, you can get better faster without even going to the office. So that's an advantage. And then the other issue is the, um, is the increase in our Zoom use and hybrid, you know, hybrid meetings and all that, that's been a boon in several areas. So for example, here at UC Davis with the hospital, you know, we, we have several in-person meetings, but now that we have hybrid meetings, we can have people go to meetings and then join remotely if they're not coming to work that day. Or for example, if they're on the main campus, um, they can join the meeting and that's useful for everybody. So it's useful for us to get input from like a, a lot of the people on the main campus in the vet, the veterinary medicine 
um, area that have some common overlaps with um, with human medicine, you know, they can join us on our discussion of infectious diseases. That's been that's been great. Collectively, do you think we'll be better prepared if, if something similar, another pandemic arises in the near future? Yeah, I, I'm hopeful. I think we are better prepared now. Um, but the danger to me is the backsliding that will that may occur as we move farther and farther away from the pandemic. So if, for example, the next next pandemic is 20 years from now, you know, in the meantime, the risk is that people will become complacent and there will be more cuts to public health next time there's a budget crisis. And that's not going to serve us well in the future. That's what that's the main thing I worry about. Finally, Dr. Blumberg, we invite you back here on Inside a Year from today. So February of 2024. <laughs> what do you hope we'll be discussing, talking about when it comes to COVID-19? You know, my hope is that it will become endemic. It will become similar to influenza. The variants won't be that important. They'll be like a little bit interesting, but they won't be dramatic. And that we will settle into a seasonal pattern with COVID so that we can do what we do with influenza and get one seasonal booster every year instead of this, you know, four to six month booster, which we've had. And just, you know, nobody's up for that. That's just not feasible. Dr. Blumberg, thank you so much for the time over the last three years. Thank you for so much for having me, for getting the word out and for taking a walk down memory lane. That is Dr. Dean Blumberg, Chief of Pediatric Infectious Diseases at UC Davis Health, who shared his reflections on the pandemic over the last three years as California's state of emergency comes to an end. You're listening to Insight here on CAP Radio. I'm your host, Vicki Gonzalez. We're back in just a moment. Hi there. If you're enjoying Insight, we think you'll love our podcast, Blue Dot, with your host, that's me, Dave Shlom. Every week, we take a deep dive into science and nature, from the search for life beyond our pale blue dot in the vastness of space to the ecosystems we all depend on. You never know what you'll hear from the physics of Leonardo da Vinci to communications with humpback whales. Check out Blue Dot wherever you get your podcasts. Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR. Welcome back to Insight on Cap Radio. I'm your host, Vicki Gonzalez. We spent a good chunk of our program reflecting on the past three years from one of the leading medical experts in our area, Dr. Dean Blumberg from UC Davis Health. Now we want to turn to what the future looks like here in California. As the emergency declaration expires, life goes on, maybe a little differently, maybe a little less cautiously for some, maybe more for others. Since we're located at Sac State, we asked people on campus how they're reflecting on the past three years? Well, well, there's still many cases, new cases reported every day and people are still dying of it. Um, you know, it's, it's not the crisis that it was early on, but you know, I, it, it's still here and with us. It's probably gonna wind up being a situation where you have to get a vaccine every year, just like you have to get a flu shot 
every year. Everything's changed over the last three years, I'd say for me. Um, you know, I was one of the people who uh, quit, quit my job in 2021, um, along with the other tens of millions of other Americans. And um, yeah, I mean, I think it's, it's, you know, we all went through this sort of period of time that seemed like missing years of our lives. And now it's nice, uh, nice to be back to normal. Definitely changed how I view a lot of things, just like how people like attacked one another for personal choices that they made on themselves. So I kind of like moved different because like I watched my sister lose a lot of friends because me and my family personally didn't get the vaccine. So we lost a lot of like friends over it. And then even family members didn't want to see us for the longest time. I do not think it's over. I think the pandemic is still alive. I think that politicians got enough. <laughs> they didn't like, like all the flack they were getting and they downed it a little bit. And um, I think I'm not alone in saying that we could be, we could be going back to that anytime. And I think by seeing my fellow students here wearing masks, they feel the same. So while the pandemic is still with us, California clearly is moving forward. To help us answer some of the questions of what all this means, we're joined by Janelle Salonga, Cap Radio's Sacramento Communities Reporter, and Kate Wolf, Cap Radio's Healthcare Reporter. Thanks for joining us on what is really a milestone day. Yeah, thanks for having us, Vicki. Thanks, Vicki. So before we dig in, I want to hear from the both of you just as as people outside of the journalist world. Uh, Janelle, I want to start with you. What have the past three years been like for you? You were just graduating from college. Yeah, I mean, I it, feel, it felt very surreal to graduate. I graduated in March 2021. Um, and so, you know, this was just at the, the time when people were just starting to get vaccinated. So I actually did walk in a graduation ceremony in June. But, you know, I started at Cap Radio in April of that year, and I didn't really feel, you know, a, a hard break between the end of college and the start of Cap Radio because we at the office are still actually working pretty hybrid. I think now there's people coming into the studio a lot more often. But yeah, at the time I started, it was definitely really surreal to be like, oh, I'm working here now uh, when my brain still felt like, you know, I was doing online school and I'm doing online interviews. So yeah, definitely you know, definitely a change that didn't really feel like one. And I think, you know, as the pandemic has kind of gone on, it's been, uh, I think I've seen it be compared of the feeling of kind of like a group project that we were all in it together at the beginning. And now the work is kind of being dropped onto other people. And it's, you know, I definitely understand where a lot of that comes from, especially because a lot of people, you know, just want to feel like they're living their lives. And for a lot of people, you know, part of that is indoor dining. And for others, you know, be working in person is how they get their money. It's not, you know, a negotiable part of life. But I mean, a couple of questions that I'm really coming back to is, you know, what is this quote unquote normal that we say that we're returning to and how that might be possible when there's still, you know, this pandemic that can potentially disable people if they get infected? Yeah, I, Janelle, you and I started around the same time at Cap Radio in 2021. And, and I totally agree with you when, when we think about normal or say that word normal, I kind of always like hesitate because I'm like, what does that really mean? You know, because it's not like we just went back to like 2019. Kate, same to you. I mean, how has been navigating the pandemic, the lessons that you've learned and your concerns moving forward and just kind of your overall journey? Definitely. So in March 2020, I was living in Berkeley with roommates and we all had different perceptions, different priorities, and we had to have 
you know, what began a series of calibrating conversations about how we wanted to live, how we wanted to be experiencing our, um, you know, early 20s together uh, while we were in this very, very serious, a very unknown landscape um, that was extremely dangerous. So, um, as a super extroverted person, it was really compromising to my social and emotional health to be so shut down. And I think that that was um, experienced by so many people. Um, just the mental health impact uh, was really uh, apparent for me. And, you know, in uh, hearing uh, your last segment with Dr. Dean Blumberg, just the um, the way it evolved, right, when vaccines came out and there was more flexibility, I really had this moment where I was reevaluating where I was, where I wanted to be. And, um, and it felt like emerging from underwater, finding yeah. finding my new spot here at Cap Radio. Um, but of course, as a healthcare reporter too, there's a lot of balancing of you know what, how are people actually acting? How are people you know how can we be realistic about um, about how people are acting and what makes sense to message to people, and also realistic about the you know potentially debilitating, um, disabling effects of this virus. Yeah. I like that analogy emerging from underwater, like a, a breath of fresh air. Okay, so let's get with the big picture. The both of you did tremendous work kind of walking people through what all of this means. What does it mean that the states of California's COVID emergency declaration is ending, Janelle? Yeah, so I mean, for, um, for example, a lot of the way that um, a lot of the way that things are changing is, you know, it's kind of mostly symbolic, um, this change, but it will, a lot of what is changing uh, with the federal emergency when that ends in May, I think that will be a lot more impactful for most people. And I mean, even the California Department of Health says it's continuing to update, you know, it's COVID-19 dashboard weekly. So I mean, that's one example of something that's not really changing. But um, Kate, do you want to talk a little bit more about what things look like? Right. As Janelle says, it's symbolic mostly, right? There's there was flexibility enacted during the um, the state state of emergency of who could do what, when, where. Almost uh, 550 of these proclamations have been sunsetted. There are just a couple left now. Uh, the state government says that they're hoping to preserve some privileges for healthcare workers that were enacted, like nurses being able to give Paxlovid, lab workers processing, lab tests on their own. But for the most part, it's symbolic, and the federal emergency is what we're really um you know, seeing actual changes with. We were just talking about that uh, before the show began. It was like, there's not like a lot of fanfare surrounding today, you know, because it is largely symbolic. But there is that big argument that there are people who believe that this declaration, should, one, should have gone away a long time ago. However, others think it should still be in place. So so walk us through these these two very different views of how we should move forward as a state. Kate, I'll start with you. Right. We asked a number of people in the public health space about this. Dr. Brad Pollack is a professor of epidemiology and a chairman of the Department of Public Health Sciences at UC Davis School of Medicine. And um, here's what he said about the change. If it's a constant state of emergency, it's not an emergency any longer. So it actually detracts from the the power of declaring an emergency. And we're way we are way into this. I don't. We've never had anything of this duration before. So um, it it makes sense to sort of be able to distinguish being an emergency situation from not. 
And Dr. Pollock and the state and federal government all, all want to be clear that we're in a much better place to handle this with the vaccines, treatment, testing than we have uh, over the course of the pandemic. Yeah. And I mean, on the flip side of that, uh, April Jean is the policy director of California COVID Justice, and that's a campaign uh, with the nonprofit Public Health Advocates. And, you know, she has kind of a different point um, about the emergency ending. We feel that the that it's very premature. You know, we believe that, you know, in our word and with what we've seen occur as a result of the pandemic, that there's still a lot of groundwork that needs to be laid and investments that need to happen ensure in, in order to ensure that communities who have been most impacted by the pandemic have an equitable shot at recovery. Yeah, what we've learned over the last three years is the impact has been far from uniform. You know, Janelle, you mentioned this, that there is obviously a California state of emergency that is sunsetting, but there's also a federal state of emergency as well. When does that impact? When does that end? And what impact will that have? Yeah, that ends May May 11th, and it will kind of structure access to testing, vaccines, treatment based on insurance status. So, you know, obviously that's going to affect uh, people who don't have insurance a lot harder than people who do. But in California, State Bill 1473 requires insurers to continue covering COVID treatment like Paxlovid and reimbursing people for eight over-the-counter tests a month until November 11th. Then people will have to start to seek those services in-network if they're insured. But what happens after that and in general um, is kind of still up in the air because the Biden administration has talked about making vaccines, treatment and testing free or low cost for people who are uninsured or on Medi-Cal. But like I said, nothing's super firm yet. All right, Kate. So as we mentioned, COVID is still here. People are going to continue to get sick. They're going to need testing. They're going to need care. And while most Californians have some sort of health insurance, that that in-network piece, almost 3 million don't have insurance. So how will insurance or lack thereof factor into getting treated for COVID? If you have insurance, things are essentially going to stay the same. If you don't have insurance, when things move over to the regular health care system, as uh, Janelle is describing, it's confusing still. Uh, and people are worried that that confusion is actually going to stop a lot of people who are uninsured or underinsured from seeking treatment, uh, even if they could find it uh, through uh, county health services. Um, Amy Sisson is health officer for Yolo County and says the funding structure for keeping things low cost is still being figured out between the federal government, the state and counties. I think, um, you know, we're unfortunately returning to the hodgepodge that is America's healthcare system. Um, it's a problem that we have with every other disease. And it's been wonderful um, that we've essentially had universal health care when it comes to COVID. And we've all enjoyed that. And you can hear her dog joining us at the end there. Uh, as Janelle says, the federal government has said it wants things to remain low cost, but it's not clear how that will happen and how much will fall on the state and counties to fund. So will vaccines still be free? And if so, for how long? And if you do have to pay out of pocket, any idea how much that could cost? If you have insurance, yes, you uh, will have to do in-network in the fall. But yes, vaccines will still be free. If you don't have insurance, as long as federal supplies last, they'll be free. 
When the vaccines are commercialized, they could cost up to $115 per dose if you're paying, you know, fully out of pocket. That's compared to $28 per dose for the flu vaccine. So when you pay fully out of pocket for the flu vaccine, you're paying much less. Um, And those numbers are from the health policy analysis nonprofit, the Kaiser Family Foundation. Yeah, that's almost a fourfold increase when compared to the vaccine for influenza. What about therapeutics like Paxlovid? How much could they cost? Paxlovid currently costs the federal government $530 per series. Uh, It's expected to cost more when it transitions to the private market, although Pfizer, the company that makes it, has not disclosed the planned price. The federal government has said it will work to keep these medications relatively affordable. Again, if you have insurance, you're going to be able to access Mm. therapeutics uh, relatively easily. So things are obviously still in flux and being discussed. But right now, you can also still get free COVID tests. How and how long will that last? So you can get eight tests per month through your insurance through November. Uh, you'll be you'll still be able to get tests um, past that, um, just maybe a little bit more limited. I will probably be taking advantage of that. I um, probably will be stocking up a little bit. Most COVID tests have shelf lives of uh, a year to two years. Um Uninsured people are likely going to keep paying full price for tests or can likely find them at county health clinics. So, Janelle, we're talking about all of this because people are still going to get sick. They're still going to get COVID-19. That is a reality that we're living with. What have we learned about what to do when getting sick with COVID compared to three years ago back in 2020? So like, you know, Dr. Pollock with UC Davis said earlier, uh, you know, we're definitely in a different place now. We have vaccines, we have antiviral treatments that can help kind of reduce the initial impact of illness. And, you know, there are things like test to treat sites now um, in counties where you can get tested and prescribe Paxlovid on the spot, which is super important because uh, you have to take the antiviral within, you know, five days of contracting COVID. Um, And so, You know, with later variants of the virus, we've learned that, um, you know, the state now recommends testing within three to five days after exposure, since it is something that will start showing symptoms a little earlier than previous variants. And we've also learned that resting is just generally really important, especially to avoid prolonging COVID symptoms after the infection. Um, We've also learned a lot about, you know, just isolating in general, how to create isolation zones, Isolation isolation zones if you live with other people, Um, you know, opening windows or using air purifiers for ventilation and then making sure everyone is wearing a common, you know, mask in common spaces if somebody is sick. And so if you are sick, you know, the CDC recommends isolating for five days, but often people test positive after that. So actually, when I got COVID last summer, I tested positive for 10 days and, you know, um, A lot of people, CDC included, recommend that you use rapid tests, um, preferably a couple, to determine when you're negative. Yeah, I know for for me, Janelle, like my husband and I were like stayed in different rooms when when one of us got sick and we just like avoided each other um, completely in in a small space. So it definitely is possible. Um, What are the rules in terms of like the workplace? What's changing with the measures that employers are taking? Yeah. So because COVID-19 supplemental sick leave ended in California at the end of last year, you know, that's an example of one of the proclamations sunsetting a little bit earlier. If you test positive, you'll have to use regular sick days unless your workplace still provides specific COVID leave. So it's always a good idea to check in, you know, on your workplace if it has specific COVID-19 policies. Um, And like Kate said, a good idea. It's probably a good idea to stock up on rapid tests now since you actually can still get some free via the government. um, And, you know, you can also qualify for um, family or medical leave 
um, or short-term short-term disability leave and benefits, depending on the extent or severity of uh, your illness if you get COVID. And that family or medical leave might also be available if you're helping take care of, you know, a sick family member. Hmm. We have learned some really hard learning lessons about equity. You know, like I mentioned, oh, my husband and I could we could avoid each other in our home. But that's not the case if you live in multi-generational households. And we know that the state also tried hard to prioritize getting the first vaccines out to people from underserved communities. And it just didn't go as well as it should have. What are we learning about how accessible vaccines, treatment and testing are, Kate? We've learned from the CDC's analysis that people living in counties that are both high poverty areas and majority Black, Hispanic or American Indian or Alaska Native are less likely to have access to COVID-19 treatment facilities and are also less likely to be treated with antivirals. So trusted messengers like people in community-based organizations are so, so necessary to get the word out about these things, about about vaccines, about um, antivirals, about testing, uh, about resources that people can access, and um, to yeah to c- connect people to preventative care and responsive care. Uh, as funding decreases for these community-based organizations, it's going to be really hard to improve accessibility to make sure that. Um, you know, that people who are in the most hard hit areas are getting uh, the resources that they need. And as uh, as the federal funding runs out for things like um, vaccines, it's going to be harder and more confusing to navigate. So these are definitely conversations that we're actively having and that public health officials are very, very concerned about people falling through the cracks regarding. In the last minute or two that we have, I want to get to a, a point of big evolution is how we actually test and and how our metrics have changed as a state uh, to determine whether to potentially declare a new state of emergency. Kate, how do we test for COVID differently? Wastewater has become a key player in this, right? Right. Wastewater is a hugely important tracker for how much uh, community transmission there is. Uh, If wastewater data shows a high concentration, it's it's one of the leading leading pieces of data people are looking at. Here's what Dr. Brad Pollack said about what might cause another emergency death. Declaration. I think that the preponderance of evidence for having very high infection rates, uh, maybe seeing hospitalizations spike up very, very rapidly, these would uh, from COVID, those would be the kinds of signals that would would uh, cause us to reconsider you know, declaring the emergency again. So Dr. Pollack says it's possible we'd declare another state of emergency. It's not probable, but these things like wastewater are what we're tracking. Yeah, and Janelle, we have, you know, about 45 seconds left, but I do want to end with a soundbite that 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 you had from public health advocates. If we can take um, a quick listen and then have you um, close out our show. Perfect. There's a vast difference between the accessibility of being able to go to a familiar community-based organization that I trust, I know, There are people that look like me. There are people who speak my language. There are people who understand my cultural needs. So when I walk in there and I ask a specific question about vaccinations or even historical consequences that that racism has propagated, right? So when you have that sort of safety net and now it's gone, what does that mean for the exacerbation potentially of COVID rates? Yeah. And Janelle, what they're really hitting on is ongoing recovery and the gaps that that still remain. Right, Janelle? 
Yeah, absolutely. And I think, you know, the pandemic after these states of emergency end is just going to become one that's easier for rich people with access to insurance, masks, tests and steady medical care to survive. So. And that is Kate Wolf and Janelle Salonga with Cap Radio. And that is it for Insight Today. I'm Vicki Gonzalez. Have a great day. We'll catch you back here tomorrow. Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR.